Welcome to Empowered Returns, a show that surfaces forward-thinking real estate advice that investors and developers need to help them invest smarter and build better. All right, welcome to Empowered Returns. We are here today with David Goldman of New Boston Ventures. Uh, David, I'm psyched to have you. PT and I have been looking forward to this for a while, so welcome to the show. Well, thank you, guys. It's great being here. Yeah, yeah fantastic. No, thank you for coming. It's going to be great. Yeah, we've got a lot of good things to talk about. I know we're going to dive into your background with New Boston Ventures. We're going to talk about maybe your background in politics a little bit and how those two Uh-oh. things intersect. <laughs> and uh, I think maybe we'll, we'll really be diving into your design influences, some of the things that really uh, you guys like to strive for in your projects. But maybe we can just jump in and, and talk about how you, you know, your, maybe your background in politics a little bit and where that came from and, and, uh, and how, you, how you became a real estate developer from, from an odd background of politics. Uh, sure, easy enough. Um, I've always been very political. When I was a little kid, I remember like growing up and hearing about the assassination of John Kennedy and everyone who followed Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy. And um, I just always had a passion for it. And I grew up in the era of the Vietnam War. And uh, like everyone else my age who lived in Massachusetts, I decided it was wrong and I started becoming an activist. And uh, Ended up supporting a bunch of different people running for office, and I'm literally like 13 years old, going door to door for Gene McCarthy for president. Um, I caught the bug, and never lost it, and went to college thinking that's what I was going to do. And immediately out of college, it is what I did. I went to work uh, for Paul Songus. Uh, he ran for U.S. Senate. We won. Uh, went to Washington. I came back to Boston. Um, and when Paul got cancer and left uh, public office to devote his time to himself and his family. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, so I just took a job to fill time and make some money while I was trying to figure it out. And uh, the guy I was working for was consulting with and working with real estate developers. And he, um, I watched what he was doing, and I watched what uh, the guys he was working with were doing, and women. And I said to myself, I can do that. Why am I making whatever it is he's paying me, which is chump change, when I'm watching <laughs> these guys, who I don't think are any smarter than me, making a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so I um, uh, started just slowly buying three-deckers up in uh, Dorchester, in Jamaica Plain, thinking I'd just bunch, buy a bunch of rental units. I realized that I don't really have the temperament to be a landlord. Mm. At least if I do my own management, that's for you guys. Mm. Um, so we started doing some small condo conversions. They worked out really well for us. I found a bigger project, 38 units, just outside of Common Square in Dorchester, uh, before the economy tanked. And like, what was that? Late 80s, early 90s. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, the economy mm-hmm. tanked on us. But, but before that happened, I went to Dennis Cannon, who was my business partner and uh, was Paul Songus's chief of staff in the mm-hmm. U.S. Senate, ran his campaigns for U.S. Senate, Congress, and then eventually for president, uh, who was practicing law with him at Foley Hoeg. And I presented this 38-unit project to him thinking he would have absolutely no interest and much to my surprise, he dove at the opportunity, uh, and we've been business partners ever since. Very cool. That first one we didn't make any money on, but it was a good learning experience. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so, um, so what made him, do you think, dive into the, that project at the time? Coming from also coming from politics, what was his, what was uh, Dennis's interest in, in sort of joining up with you on that project? Well, he always had an interest in real estate and in development and had always sort of in the back of his mind thought that would be a really fun thing to do. And then as he started to practice uh, law in a larger corporate firm, 
I think his personality was a little more free spirited, mm. uh, a little um, a little less rigid. The, wor- the word I usually use there is entrepreneurial. <laughs> Definitely entrepreneurial <laughs> for sure. And he uh, he jumped at the opportunity, and that was a very long time ago. And we've been uh, partners ever since. The interesting thing about that first project was besides all the problems we had doing it, because we had no idea really what we were doing, um, it happened at a time when the economy was tanking, and we started it as a condo project, thinking mm-hmm. we would do market rate condos outside of Codman Square. Uh, and we're, remember, this is like late 1980s. Yeah, that must right. have been a yeah. fascinating, yeah, yeah. Um, fascinating yeah, not, market. Not, yeah. not, not Square your prototypical condo market in the late 80s, early 90s. No, and... Um, uh, the, the economy tanked on us, and we tried to figure out how we could make this work because we're already deep into it. And we discovered uh, the world of affordable housing mm. and subsidy. We were the very first successful housing opportunity program, uh, housing development in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And uh, it's been one of our hallmarks is that no matter what someone throws at us, whether it's an economic downturn or, or rules or regulations, uh, we're very, very good at figuring it out, and we change when we have to change. That mm. went from a condo project to uh, an affordable housing project. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and and you know, huge, huge fan of, of both you and Dennis, and and it's great because you guys. I, so, can do the quick math, but you're looking plus or minus close to 35 years as as full blown business partners, right? And we worked together before that. Yeah, right. And we're in 20. But I think there's such a great yin and yang with you two just from a personality standpoint. But obviously, you've got this commonality of of values that has probably kept you together. And um, how how do you think that that the the political foundation in both of your career tracks has impacted the success of MBV? Because obviously, so much of, you know, the success and development has to do with entitling and navigating through the, the municipal process. And, and you know that's a great example used with Common Square of how you sort of audibled and were able to understand how government was working at the time and, and, and convert that to an affordable housing project and, and the subsidies and whatnot. But you know, that, that's a great sort of example. How else as MBV has grown you know, over the past 35 years, would you say that political um, acumen that you guys have has contributed to, to the success? Well, obviously, it's contributed. Uh, we can get our phone calls returned. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and that's like the biggest hurdle, uh, just having someone listen to you. And no one, no one is going to get anyone to break rules or change rules for you. But what you can do at least is get someone's ear so you can present your case. And that's really how it's helped. But we do politics n- not really for business, but because it's really where we came from. It's really our foundation. We have a core set of values um, and so we support people who run for office that, uh, even if they're not always the best people for business, are the, what we believe are the best people for the, the city, the state, and the country. Mm. Uh, we have a long list of people who we've worked for and supported. Uh, we had a really good time uh, or good experience in this last election where a lot of the people we supported did win. Mm. We've had years that were just as bad. <laughs> um, but it's better to win than to lose. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's yeah. it's interesting. It's a good it's a good point of view because I think a lot of people it seems these days more than ever take this myopic view where it's just going to be their guy because it's in their best interest and that's the only thing that matters. Whereas I think if you're 
trying to pick the right candidates that are supporting the issues that help more people as a whole and help society, that's going to help you as a business person as well. It's going to help you in your life and your family life. So, I, I mean, I, I like that perspective. Is that the same way you, you sort of see it as well? Yeah, I, d I definitely see it that way. You know, I think back to um, uh, and sometimes, it, you know, when you, when you get involved, when you do something like that, um, people, uh, there are times where people think that you're, you know, clairvoyant, that you know it's going to happen. Uh, or they think that you're a genius because you figured something out no one else figured out. And the example I'm thinking about is when Deval Patrick ran for governor. Uh, Dennis and I were very, very early supporters of his because we really liked him and we really mm. believed in him. Uh, and at the time, conventional wisdom was he didn't have a chance. All of my friends who were political were going, why are you doing that? He can't win. And they were wrong. Mm -hmm. Clearly. <laughs> That's awesome. And so... Speaking of kind of sticking on the politics a little bit, but as it relates and intersects to real estate, obviously you mentioned you were in the affordable housing business and, and still are to some degree. How, how do you see things today with some of the political debates that are going on? And, and, you know, obviously we have an affordability crisis and issues in a lot of, especially in a lot of areas and around here. How do you, how do you see, or what's your take overall on, on how we can help work together to sort of solve that affordable housing issue and, and how can we work better or either as citizens or, or as politicians to, to really try to put the right policies in place to, to help solve that problem? Well, I think that, you know, it's clearly one of the most critical issues of our times. Everybody's talking about it and they're talking about it because it's really a problem. There isn't a lot of affordable housing out there. Uh, and a lot of people are proposing different ideas. Some people like some of them, some people don't. Um, I know there's a lot of controversy over what uh, Mayor Wu is mm. proposing, but personally, I think it's a really good thing. I think at least you get the discussion started. Um, it's a starting point, and people will sit down and work it out, and over the course of time, something good is going to come from it. Um, but in terms of what they can do, just in my own opinion, in terms of uh, promoting more affordable housing, density, mm -hmm. if they allow density, if they allow more height, I mean, even if you stayed at the, what is it, 12 and a half, 13 percent that's uh, been required of developers in the city of Boston, the more you can build, the more, you, the more affordable units you're getting out there. Yeah. And as the percentages look like they're going up, that's even more true. Yeah. I, I think ultimately that is, the, that is the, the answer that has to be part of the equation here is just more density. And especially things like even if you're going density bonus for a higher percentage of affordables and things like that, some sort of way to add more supply to the system overall, because ultimately, I mean, look, Boston in this region is a great place to live, but we're obviously constrained geographically with an ocean on one side. There's not a lot of room to build. The city's been around for, you know, hundreds of years. So there's just not a lot of open land to build on But where there is opportunity, you have to build with more density. You have to add net new housing to solve this problem. And so while we can talk about, and I, don't, I, don't, I think there's a little bit of a uh, hesitation to talk about things like rent control, which I agree it's a bad policy in general, but, but you get the conversation. Get the conversation. That's right. That's right. Getting the conversation going is not a problem. Having that conversation, but but the flip side of it is we've got to add. You've got to add density. Ultimately, that's the only way by adding units and adding density to the market. So, but um, and how, how was what was your experience like building affordable housing with you know what were the mechanisms you used at the time when you were an affordable developer and do those still exist today? Uh, I believe most of them still do in 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 this day and time with the Biden administration and, and now with the Healy administration and the, the Wu administration, you know, you've got forces coming together that really believe in affordable housing mm -hmm. and are going to work hard to see that it happens. Um, our experience in affordable housing was we, uh, we started out, as I said, not intending to be affordable housing developers, but we, we 
fell into it. And it was a really good thing and it was a good experience because the, the, the work you were doing, the, the houses you were building uh, were for a good cause, for a good purpose. They're consistent with what our core set of values are. And to see young families, um, in, in many cases, moving into these brand new, newly constructed uh, homes, uh, it's just very, very fulfilling. It, it, it's a good experience to see, you know, the smile on someone's face when they realize they won a lottery uh, mm. to get an affordable mm. house. It's, it's, it's amazing. We were the lead developers of the um, single family uh, home ownership uh, homes in the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative and cool. the Dudley Triangle. And that was just such a good group of people. Everyone was working for with a common goal and a common cause. And, but the real reward is when you could look at someone who was moving into one of those houses and you, know, you just saw tears in their eyes. It was, of course, the, the flip side of it is, um, I probably shouldn't tell this story, um, <laughs> but when we were doing- We like uh, to dive deep on this show, so <laughs> feel did, free. <laughs> we did uh, a project called Lawrence Court, the corner of uh, Columbus Ave and Dartmouth Street, uh, one of our first higher profile projects. And you may or may not remember, but that site was an unofficial dumping site. It wasn't mm. what it is today. It was like mattresses and all kinds of stuff all over it. It was famous for selling Christmas trees in the, uh, uh, what is it, um, South End Youth Baseball. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, it was yeah, their Christmas yeah. tree site. Yeah. Um, and we, because we were really interested in continuing the work we were doing in affordable housing, um, and we really wanted to do that project, uh, actually voluntarily went to 20% uh, affordability, mm. and we worked with um, Tent City uh, yeah. on the marketing of the affordable component. And uh, we had one particular buyer who I got this crazy phone call from the closing, an affordable buyer, who didn't realize that the affordability was in perpetuity, perpetuity and they couldn't sell it for a huge profit yeah. and wanted to walk out of the closing. Yeah, wow. Um, Interesting. Crazy experience. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Right. Well, should we dive into today's yeah. projects segue and what you're up to these days? Segue into market rate, right? So, um, you know, when I think of MBV, um, I think of like really identifiable projects, right? And and I think of really high caliber design and and both, you know, from an exterior aesthetic and also an interior finish. And, you know, we've talked about it a lot and, and when, when we've worked together, but talk to us about your approach, you know, particularly as it pertains to branding um, and design in general, kind of, uh, again, exterior and, and kind of interior floor plans, flow, that kind of stuff, which I know is such a big focal point for you guys. And then the interior uh, finish element of it and, and how all those things kind of intertwine to kind of create an, an, an MVV product, right? Like whether it's the Lucas or the Modern, I would say, generally speaking, they have more visibility than your typical 30 to 70 unit project that you would see throughout all the different neighborhoods in the city like people remember those names right like oh the modern oh the lucas right whereas so many of these countless other projects and you you wouldn't be able to to like to put a brand on them and and kind of how is that a microcosm of everything that you guys do from an approach standpoint that kind of gets you to that point at the end well you're gonna may have to remind me of the, your list there but um <laughs> 
I'm a little <laughs> long-winded can... <laughs> at times. That's why Mike does most of the talking. But I felt like I had to get a few words in. He's I love it. I'm fired. That was well, that was, you, that you was hit on for about di- nine or nine or ten different different subjects. But yeah. the first thing we do, and I haven't talked to you about this, but it, it's true. It is what we do. Is before we start uh, a new project, um, or we've done a lot of our projects by pursuing RFPs, either from nonprofits or from the city of Boston or BPDA. And the first thing we do, and it's always given us an advantage when we're pursuing uh, an RFP, request for proposals, is we go out before we even write our proposal and meet with the neighbors. Um, Nobody knows what's going to fit a neighborhood better than the people who already live there. We did a project uh, you've probably heard of on uh, East Berkeley Street called Dover Lofts. Mm -hmm. And when we did Dover Lofts, we conceived it as a series of... traditional uh, South End townhouses. And then we met with the neighbors, and that's not what they wanted. Mm. They wanted something fun. They wanted something artsy. They wanted something that felt a little more industrial, that fit into the fabric of that part of the neighborhood. And so we literally threw out all of our preconceived notions, started from scratch, and we built the building that's there now, which reflected the input we got from the neighbors. Mm. And the same is true even as recently as 566 Columbus. Before that was an RFP from a nonprofit, and before we submitted our proposal to them, we went out and we met, met with a lot of the community leaders. I met three times with with Mel King. We met mm. with Byron Russian. We met mm. with um, uh, Frida Garcia. We met with you know Vanessa Calderon from Via Victoria Iba. Um, we met with uh, folks from the Pine Street Inn. We met with the immediate abutters in the neighborhood, and we listened to what they thought was important for that site. And we took that information, we took that input, and we incorporated as much of it as we reasonably could, uh, which is one reason why you see at 566 Columbus almost 5,000 square feet of community space that's going back at, you know, with no charge, yep. back to neighborhood organizations and nonprofits. Why you see, even before they were talking about changing the rules on affordable housing, we didn't do the 12, 12.5%, we did 17%. Mm-hmm. And we also heard from the neighbors that uh, there was a real problem with artists being forced out of the South End, that people were being forced out of the piano factory, the piano guild building. So we, we moved, especially after moving with the local, uh, we met with the district city councilor, who was then uh, Kim Janey, who eventually became mayor. And she was really, really felt strongly about the need for artist housing in the community. So we made all of our affordable units artists live workspace. Mm-hmm. Um, then we went back to the city and we got them to do something that they very rarely do, which is 50% of our units have local preference for South End residents. Mm-hmm. Um, but those things we did um, to make this a better project and a better project for the community came to us from the community. Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. And do and you feel like you... you have that mindset to do that because going back to the political conversation earlier helps, is that for yeah, sure yeah it's a habit habit and sort of how you how you grew up so to speak yeah it's true it's true i remember we were doing a project on washington street and uh before we started it we were about to go out and do our neighborhood outreach and we were going to the neighborhood associations as well and right at that time was right when elizabeth warren who we were big supporters of uh, was testing the waters to run for U.S. Senate against Scott Brown, and she did it by doing her uh, listening tour mm. around around the state. And so we just 
stole her words and went to the residence uh, in and around Worcester Square, Washington Street, uh, Blackstone Franklin, and we we copied her. We did our listening tour, yeah. and uh, uh, it ended with some mixed results in that one. But it's a good project. It mm -hmm. did well. Yeah. No, there's really an art to it. I mean, you see a couple of different styles from developers out there too. Some like to take the approach you do to go early and start listening. Others maybe propose a giant thing knowing it's going to get cut down later and they sort of do what they want. You've, you see a couple of different approaches, not just in Boston, but in, in everywhere there's development happening. So, But it's, it's, it's interesting to see the different sort of personalities and approaches as they, as they come into that and, and how, your, how your political background may impact how, how you feel about those things. That's fascinating. It, it definitely does. Uh, we actually think it gives us a big advantage. If mm. we go in, there were, what, half a dozen different proponents for the proposal at uh, 566 to United South and Settlements. And they chose our us over the others, not entirely because of dollars and cents, but because they felt it met the concerns and the needs of the neighborhood the most. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, And that political approach gave us an advantage that people who don't think like that don't have. Mm. Yeah. yeah, without a doubt. I think it, it does absolutely make a big difference when you when you make someone feel heard, and I think this applies in a lot of different aspects in life and business. When you make someone feel heard, you can you can, you can can definitely shift mindsets in a lot faster, not necessarily faster, but in a, in, a, in a smoother way than just try to force something down people's throats. And I don't care whether it's business day-to-day -day or real estate development or politics. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's yeah. a, I think, an important part that we all need to realize more often. So well, we couldn't we we couldn't do everything uh, on Columbus Ave that the neighborhood was looking for, but we did as much mm. as we could. Yeah. I mean, when I met with Mel King the first time, uh, he was half kidding, but half serious, and he said, uh, "When I said what, what would you like to see, what would you like to see us do?" Because we gave him the proposal first for him to read, and he said, "Do it all affordable." <laughs> yeah. Well, we didn't do it all yeah. affordable, but we did a lot more than mm. we were required to do, mm. and Mel did eventually. Uh, uh, actively support us. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, that, and that's that's the beauty of it, though, right? You get people to come around. You have a discussion. There's a little bit of a give and take, and ultimately you build a good a good project. That's I'm sure you're excited to get finished and open there. Yeah. So yeah. I actually trying to tie this back into the first of my 18 part question from before. Um, oh yeah, I forgot about yeah, that. I know. Like, I, well, there was too much there. I get it. I get it. Um, I didn't even answer you, your do question. Do you think that that part approach? Two <laughs> no, both of you. I'm gonna walk out of here. Um, so do you think that approach, though, the way you get kind of so immersed in, in the community and the neighborhood, does, do you think that helps you with the branding? And then how that, again, that was kind of the first part about my question. I think that's such a calling card for MBV that, like, again, especially in a market segment that doesn't necessarily usually accomplish that. Like, I would think that that helps you guys get to where you end up going with these brands that actually resonate and are sustainable over time, even after initial sellout. And as these properties, you know, become a f part of the fabric of a community, is that a fair comment? Yeah, I think it is. You know, Dennis and I um, have talked a lot about how we don't want our projects to be cookie cutter. Um, they're all unique, um, and we try to make them. Uh, fit into the context of the neighborhood they're being bid into, built in. We try to uh, complement the architecture in the neighborhood we're in, and we try to take uh, the fabric of the neighborhood and, and the input we get from the folks in the neighborhood and when we design our buildings. And our design pro process is a whole, probably a little unusual too. We bring everyone together that we can, our marketing folks, our design folks, our architects, 
sometimes some of the engineers, um, and uh, with us, and we have, and you were part of it on, yeah. on uh, the Brighton project, um, we go round and around and around talking about what it should look like, uh, what it needs to be, and how it addresses uh, where the market is today. And, and then even on floor plans, you saw, um, we go crazy about floor plans. My, this guy was walking a building a couple weeks ago and framing and changed some floor plans because he noticed <laughs> some deficiencies. I mean, yeah. like talk about hands on. Attention to detail. Just, again, but it's like, it was great. That, that was a great audible, you know? Uh, and, and it's so, so key to, to, to get deep on that stuff. But our, our projects, in, although there are different teams or different members of the team from project to project, um, it, it's a collaboration. It is, a t it is teamwork. And uh, although I'm not always the best listener, eventually I do hear, and <laughs> a lot of people have some really good ideas that make our projects better. It's not just us, it's, I think it's our approach. Um, we could never have you know, achieved the kind of layout and floor plan and unit mix at Brighton without your input. It wouldn't happen. Yeah, I think it's, it's one of those things that getting a multi, it's, you know, it's a cliche a little bit, but development's a team sport. As you yeah. just alluded it to, <laughs> unless you're I working with us. <laughs> um, but I, I, we it was we like to talk about you know bringing in the different people uh, and vendors and partners with different approaches or different knowledge and, and like what we say we like to bring to the mix is we're close to the customers all day every day, right? And so for any business, getting close to the customer, knowing what they're going to buy is so critical. In our, our case, it's you know the customers are buyers of condos and. But we can try to help offer that guidance and make sure we're, we're maybe helping inform the architect who may have not talked to a buyer in the last 20 years, right? And so and doesn't want to. And doesn't right. want to, right, <laughs> exactly. So I think that's how you can all come together and start to really bridge and build a good a good uh, development project. But ultimately, it really starts with the developer's vision and, and having that sort of attention to detail and vision to build something unique and different is really critical. I mean, we definitely come in with a certain vision, but it gets massaged and massaged and massaged. And it doesn't always end up at the end of the day what you thought you were gonna do in the beginning, but it always ends up better. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. E even the city process. I mean, a lot of people complain about it. I actually think the buildings we've built have really benefited from the amount of time we've spent uh, in city agencies, particularly BPDA, formerly the BRA, and the Landmarks Commission. Um, if you view, view them as a partner and someone who can help you make a better project, everybody's happier at the end. You know, you don't have to fight with these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's a great word, right? It's, it's so obvious but so overlooked as, as partner, right? Like all these people that you team up with are your partners and everyone's like oh it's a client or oh you know and, and again all these relationships have nuances but if you approach it with a partnership mentality where everyone's aligned that you're out for each other's best interests like it's just going to lead to a better end product right the 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 building and the architecture and the design of 566 columbus Ave. i'm talking about a lot because we're in the middle of, or of course yeah. heading towards the end of construction there right now um would not be, I mean, I think it's a magnificent building, and I don't think it would be as good as it is without the input and the help we got from the Landmarks Commission, the neighbors who came to the commission mm. meetings, uh, and the input and uh, the advice we got from the BPDA. And that's true of all of our projects. It's always been true. Every time I go before the Landmarks Commission, I always start with the same stupid line. And I'm 
embarrassed that I keep saying it, but I say it because it's true. And that is that our projects are better because of your input, and they always have been. And we want to hear what you have to say. Um, and I feel like it sounds phony because I say it every time I'm there, <laughs> but I say it because I mean it. Yeah. 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 And, I, and I've asked you this before, but um, I think it's a, it's a good tie-in because I know sort of what your answer is probably going to be. But what's one thing that you do differently in your developments that most people would disagree with that do what you do? Well, there's a lot. <laughs> I mean, even the teamwork uh, approach, you know, right. wanting to hear yeah, what other true. people are thinking. Yeah. I, I know some folks in the business who don't care what anyone else thinks. Right. And I think frequently they fail. Yeah. Um, we don't believe on value engineering the heck out of the finishes. The finishes, if you look at a construction project, if you look at the budget, it is a tiny, totally, tiny totally, line right. item. And it's the first place that a lot of general contractors go to cut Yeah, is on the finishes. Well, they're not going to get much out of the finishes. So, you know, they're going to tell us, uh, you know, you could save $50,000 if you went with GE or Bosch appliances instead of going with a higher-end brand. Like right now, we're using an all-projects Mila. Right. Um, and we, we've developed a really good relationship with the Mila folks. You've met them out yeah. of New York. And... What we try to do is build a better mousetrap. Um, if someone's out there and there's three condo developments in the same general area and they're looking at the three of them and they have to make a decision between the three of them, we want ours to be the decision and we feel that we get there more often than not by giving them a better product, giving them higher end finishes, giving them a better sense of design and the design element within the units. Um, you don't see carpet in our bedrooms. Everything's hardwood. Right. Um, you know, you, you don't see, I don't mean to dish anyone, but Home Depot cabinets. <laughs> They're all custom. Yeah. Right. Um, and for w the return on, on just in terms of the velocity of your sale is so much faster. People don't want to spend the money up front. They're going to save it on the other end yeah. because just their carry costs, if they sell that much quicker, are going to be that much lower. Yeah, it's such a such a valid point, and 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 even you know, layering it back one more, bringing in someone like a a, a known interior designer, right, to, to help expedite and enhance that process, right, and and uh, I think that that's something that you guys are doing on a lot of your projects that other people don't do. And we've been doing it for years. I remember uh, the first time I believe we actually brought in a a, a name interior designer was on the modern we brought in Dennis Duffy mm. oh, yeah. uh, and, and Dennis did the uh, the moderns and I believe from my memory serves me right he also worked with us on the old historic Salem jail yeah we did the project the Royal and some other ones I remember which ones uh, we used uh, Tread Elms Andrew Tourette uh, and D Elms and now for the last several projects last few years we've been working very closely with wolf and sheep designs uh, Alina Wolhart who are just fun to work with. Um, but I think that's actually one of the things that we didn't talk about is that you have to like the people you're working yeah. with. Mm -hmm. totally, yeah. um, you have to respect each other and, and, and listen. And if working isn't fun, then you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, it's just it's just not worth not worth the grind if it's not if it's not a little bit of fun. Now you know conflict. Conflict is healthy. It's one of those things that you want to have some back and forth, but but you, you it has to be fun at the end of the day, right? So that's that that's a key part. Um, 
to go and it's actually to, that sort of reminded me of a point you just made about the finishes and like a, a, a brand name designer or whatever is we talk a lot about quality signals and the quality signals you're sending to buyers that walk in the door and it might be a brand name designer it might be you know Amelia appliance versus you know a lower end it might be even to the point where we're talking about this is why we build sort of nice pretty touchable brochures and things like that this is just like especially in the pre-sales process the quality that people perceive on all these little touch points reduces friction to make them make an easier and faster buying decision and sells and, and creates higher and faster sell through velocity. So all these things really kind of add up and, and deliver that friction or lower friction buying process that helps you just sell more, sell through more units. So it's great. So we, I think we totally echo we're on the same page with that. But I, I think my question here is how do you get your uh, investors and people are participating in your project to realize the same thing and understand, Hey, it's worth spending the extra money on a, really high-end designer, high-end appliances versus doing some value engineering and saving some costs early on? It's really easy. They're all making a lot of money with us. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even ask those questions. Yeah, anymore. awesome. We have the same groups of investors that we've had for years and years and years. We get phone calls all the time. When are you doing another one? Mm. You know, I've got some money I want to put into a project. Um, they just trust us. Mm. And they trust us because it's, the formula is successful. Yeah. Fantastic, and, and they and they benefit from that. Yeah, and so so on that end, how how important? I know you said you guys respond to a lot of RFPs for your sort of deals and deal flow that you're looking for, but how do you how do you identify even the RFPs that you want to go after and attack? What is the do you have any specific selection criteria? The types of deals, types of locations you really try to strive to to uh, to to go after from a development standpoint? Not really we have a pretty open mind i mean we'll look at each one and if we think it makes sense and there's an approach that we can take that that we want to take that works for us um we'll do it and we look at a lot of things we probably pass up on more things uh than we do um but the the other thing which is kind of interesting in the business is that um sometimes we'll look at a project and we just can't figure it out mm. how to make it work. And we, we like it, we want to do it, but it just can't succeed the way we're approaching it. And someone else gets it and they do a better job with it, they figure it out. Yep. Um, that happens uh, to everybody, but it, it also happens in the reverse. There are times, the Lucas, nobody was thinking you could go up out of the roof. Mm. It was like, everyone's thinking you gotta keep the church, you gotta keep the church. We, early, early on, had several meetings. I mean, this is the whole process with our architects, uh, which was Feingold Alexander there. Mm. And we went through a bunch of iterations of that building. And you know, every, every, all the meetings are working meetings where you go, well, I like this element of this one and that element of that one. And then you eventually come up with a project that makes sense. Um, but before, and before we closed on that deal, we spent some time meeting with both the neighbors and with the city agencies to make sure that what we were thinking had a chance of succeeding mm. with approvals. And, and it did. So we built the Lucas that has, you know, a four or five story glass tower that comes out yeah. of the top of an 1800 stone uh, Catholic church. Yeah. yeah. And that was, that was an example of where we figured out how to solve a problem other people hadn't figured out. Yeah, no, that, and that project is 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 now a, an icon of not just yeah. the South End but but Boston and really the region. It's an, it's an incredible. That's I mean, cool, never mind cool the fact, yeah. yeah, that historic rehabilitation is difficult as it is, but to do what you guys did to basically put this modern steel and glass structure erected out of a out of a you know 
uh, incredibly old stone church is, is is pretty magnificent. And for those people who are listening or watching that aren't in Boston, it's a, it's it's really an icon, and it's the vision of that is 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 amazing. And I, I commend you. I'm, I'm actually curious, how did you where where did that concept even come from? And in, in, in the first, but how did you guys have that? Say vision? it was your to, idea. Come on, <laughs> come on, just take credit. I won't tell Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> there is an architect at uh, Feingold Alexander who uh, we like a lot. He's very, very creative. We've worked with him actually since one of those early projects, uh, Lawrence Court. Um, not always with the same architects, but we've gone back and worked with them off and on o- over the course of the years. They've done a bunch of our projects with us. And Tony Shaw uh, is just a really creative guy. He's fun to work with. Uh, he thinks out of the box. Um, and what's there now, what you see at the building, at the Lucas, it, you know, it, it's the result of a lot of different ideas that came mm. together. Um, a piece of this one, a piece of that one. And it was an evolution. It took quite a bit of time. Mm. Uh, and it was an evolution working with the city uh, to get where we got. But now uh, I live there. If I look out my window at least a few times a day, I see people taking pictures of it. Yeah, cool. Um, and now it's, what, four or five years old? And I believe about two or three years ago, Boston Magazine did an article on the top 100 buildings in Boston, and it was somewhere in the middle, like 54 or something. Mm. It was cool. Yeah, it's a cool. Yeah. It's, it's, it is. It's awesome. I, I'm curious, just digging into the details a little bit more, too, and maybe like, how did you how did you start to think about underwriting that deal in the first place and when you didn't really know what could possibly materialize out of this and, and sort of going in to try to have the have the vision of like, okay, we want to go after you know this site. We want to go, we think we can do something here. But how were you thinking about, you know, in terms of the early stages underwriting that type of project? Yes, yeah, it really hasn't been a huge problem for us over the years on, mm. on, on almost any of our projects. Maybe in the early days, uh, once you establish a reputation and once you have a certain level of success um, and, and you're working with the same people, there's a level of trust where they're going to defer to you. Mm. And if we think something is going to work um, and we bring it to people who've done very well by us before, uh, it, it's not that hard of a sell. Mm. It really isn't. Yeah. Uh, and remember... The Lucas came on shortly after uh, the ink block was finished. Yep. Um, I'll, I'll never forget it. I went to the ink block right as it first got finished, and we hadn't started on the Lucas yet. And I wanted to check out the new Whole Foods. And I went to Whole Foods, and I got done, and I was in my car, and I'm leaving the driveway. And I'm in the driveway, leaving Whole Foods, looking up, and across from me is the back of the church. Uh, I called... Uh, my business partner, Dennis Cannon, up, and I said, this is really good, and we need to get a banner on the back of the church. Yeah. <laughs> and we did. Nice. Yeah. Fantastic. A lot of Whole Foods traffic there. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of developers around the country just chase Whole Foods around, actually, yeah, they do. and find sites to develop near yeah, Whole Foods. That's actually but a real thing. It's another... Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I think that's kind of a good segue, right? Both you guys are South Enders, yeah. right? I mean, you've... You've been in the South End for a long, long time. Most of my life. Yeah. I, I would love to hear your kind of take on the evolution of it and, um, you know, how it's changed and what's kept you there so long versus, you know, uh, audibling to other parts of the city at any point in time. And, you know, what do you kind of see for the neighborhood moving forward? And then, you know, Boston as a whole from a you know standpoint of the development climate. 
Well, I first moved to the South End. I had actually, it was right after I went to work uh, for Paul Songus in the U.S. Senate, and I initially went to Washington, D.C. I came back to Boston and uh, found an apartment that I thought was okay. I was a little nervous about the neighborhood. It was at uh, 17 Kazanov Street, mm -hmm. right oh, yeah. near Columbus, right when they were taking the Orange Line down there then. Um, and uh, But I remember when I first moved into that house, and I wasn't in real estate then. I was just in government and politics. Um, I, I just uh, moved in with, with my husband, Jacques, who were still married. Uh, actually, we weren't married then. They wouldn't let us. Um, but anyways, um, but I remember we, we would, yeah, we, yeah, we, 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 we were that first, right? We had been together 27, we were 22 in the city of Boston. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Uh, and it was great. Mayor uh, Menino was there and a bunch of people. Um, but I remember when we first moved into that house, you know, talking with Jacques and saying, it's okay to live here, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't go any further in. I wouldn't go, you know, I wouldn't go as far as Tremont Street. The following year, we got an apartment at 89 Waltham Street. <laughs> and I remember saying, but I wouldn't go past Shawmut. <laughs> and then, you know, a few years later, I'm living on Washington Street. Um, and, and now I'm on Shawmut Ave. Um, you know, there was an article a number of years ago, I think we talked about this earlier, uh, called uh, Overlooked Neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. If you just look at, if you just GPS where we are and what's around us, uh, it would be impossible for an area like this not to come back, not to succeed. Yeah. Uh, it's just, just given its location mm -hmm. to transportation, mm. to shopping, uh, and to the different amenities that the city has to offer. But what I like about the South End is that you still have a certain amount of diversity. Um, most of the projects we've built in the South End uh, abut uh, affordable housing projects. And I live right next to Castle Square. Um, I love it. Um, I have no intention of leaving it. And uh, that kind of diversity is something that's unique, not even, I was going to say unique in the country, but it's actually really even unique within the city of Boston. Mm -hmm. um, and I like that. And I love the fact that even the restaurant culture in the South End reflects the, uh, the neighborhood and the people who live here and the diversity of the people who live there. Yeah. No, I, I I agree. I've been in the South End for almost no, just about twenty years now myself. So seen seen some evolution, maybe not quite as long as your evolution. Where's your but, first place? But, uh, right by actually right by five sixty six Columbus. Actually, just around the, on the other side of uh, Mass Ave. There, right at six six twelve plus six twelve. You got it, Columbus. So yeah, right near the pizza place. Yes, exactly, exactly. So that was the first place, and I've moved a few times in the South End since then. But it is a phenomenally. Uh, I, I tell people it's the best neighborhood in the world. Any place I've ever been to, this is I couldn't think of any other place that I'd want to live. And you've got you've got everything you need: parks, local shops, local restaurants, diverse neighborhood, uh, friendly people, families, different kinds of all kinds of different demographics. It's dog That's friendly. A, yeah, you, yeah, exactly, totally, totally. So, uh, yeah, God friendly. So, but um, but uh, and I I, I love it because I live my whole life essentially. My wife and I we have two young kids and we live our whole life in an eight block radius. It's it's amazing. We can walk everywhere. We can get on transportation. We can go to the doctor, the groceries, the shops, restaurants. It's it's just a, such a fan parks for the kids. It's a fantastic neighborhood. One of the favorite new things I've been doing lately is uh, I remember when I was a little kid, my um, mother's parents, my grandparents lived in the Bronx in New York, mm. and we used to go visit them a lot. And uh, when we, uh, and my grandmother, I remember, you know, when she'd do her grocery shopping, she had her little milk cart 
and she, she you know they lived in one of these tall high rises in the Bronx and she'd go out and you know the elevator guy would take her down they had elevator operators then they yeah. didn't have buttons right and she got door shopping come back with a little cart so after we moved into the Lucas and I just realized how close we were to Whole Foods I decided I needed to go out and get myself my grandmother's little cart. <laughs> so now I go to Whole Foods with my cart. I feel just like my grandmother. It's <laughs> That's right. That's awesome. <laughs> what do you so what do you see for whether it's South End or Boston in general? What do you what do you what do you envision the next twenty years or thirty years in Boston to be like? What do you what do you think? Not to put your put you on the spot with your forecasting ability, but I'd love I'd like to sort of hear what people think the city's going. I think it's going to continue in the directions it's been going and maybe not as quickly, maybe not in the exact same locations, but Boston is such a wonderful place to live. It's such a great city. Uh, I can't see anything but positive growth moving forward. Um, I mean, even look, look at the seaport. Um, personally, it's, it's not exactly my style. Mm. For me, it feels a little Disney World-ish, mm. yeah. but, but there are people who it is their style and they're looking for it. It's a whole new part of the city of Boston not just uh, this geographic area being built up now, but it's a whole different element, a whole different neighborhood, all new people. Uh, and there, are, if you look around, there's just so many opportunities like that. Um, I mean, they're talking about now in South Boston doing the old, um, or the electric power yep, station, right. which right. is a pretty big, significant project. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. On the other side of the expressway, just past um, uh, East Berkeley Street, there's that whole area down there that was yep. industrial. You know, the industrial areas in the city are, are moving out because they can make so much money selling off their land, their property, uh, relocating to places that are more affordable to do business out of. And where they were located is turning into a lot of housing and a lot of commercial districts that didn't used to exist. I don't see how that's going to stop. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think the nice thing, we have this wide, diverse economic base that is really supporting. We've got, obviously, an influx of new people every year with the colleges and universities. So we've, you know, between a lot of those things, um, it, it really just continues to support this ecosystem overall, this, you know, high, you know, sort of high IQ areas, businesses being formed. And so that's that's really exciting. And I think, you know, so long as we can continue to work together to, to build enough housing for the people who want to live here and and, and create and expand new and unique neighborhoods while, you know, trying to preserve some of the history that's important as well. Um, uh, I think we're in really good shape for the long run here in Boston, as opposed to probably a lot of, a lot of other cities or more so than a lot of other cities. So I'm, I'm excited and very bullish on, on, yeah. on Boston, the Boston area, for sure. Also, just, just the universities, the libraries, the museums, the whole cultural aspect of Boston makes it a destination city. Mm that isn't always the case in every city. Mm. Yeah. And it's very, but the nice thing about Boston, especially, and I think it differentiated between a lot of places, it's very, very livable too. It's not just a place that people come to and attract tourists or just come to visit, it's livable. I love the walkability. Yeah, for sure. Um, I had an appointment over at Mass General and uh, I, I, I walked and I, I love the fact that, I, you know, and it was a great walk. I walked you know, through the South End, across the, uh, the, the gardens, uh, down Charles Street, and there I was at Mass General, and it took me what twenty minutes. Yeah, yeah, we had those uh, the, um, client that's that based downtown on High Street, you know, right, right in the financial district, high in Franklin, and they walked here last week for a meeting, and you know, it's January, and they're walking, you know, across the city in air quotes, right? <laughs> like, and it's you know, to your point, you know, maybe it was a half hour or whatever. So it's um, it is, it's extremely livable. It is a, an absolute awesome. Place the thing to I'm live. trying to get used to is. Um, and it's not far, 
but walking to South Boston. For some reason, I have a mental block. <laughs> I have to get in my car. It's right across yeah, the expressway. It is. <laughs> and well, the, highway. the highway's in the, the way, right? Right yeah. across the highways. I, I remember recently, I was at uh, Fox and the Knife for oh, dinner yeah. over in Southie, and I just said, you know what? I'm going to walk home. And it was really close. Mm, yeah, <laughs> Especially totally. to where you are over yeah. in Chomet. Yeah. It was really close. Yeah. Um, so what, what is, if we were to say, you've obviously had a really successful long track record, but is there anything that you thought was like, I'm old. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I, you know, very, um, very young. Like experience. a fine you started wine. Very, like a fine wine. wine. <laughs> That's right. Which maybe we'll talk about wine in one second, but what, have you made any, um, mistakes along the way that you're like, this is a lesson learned or, or something that I wish was, was a little bit different or just for, you know, for someone new coming into the development world, what's some of the lessons you may have learned over time that you could, you could help a young developer with, let's say. Lessons learned that would help a young developer. Well, we we keep track of lessons learned, um, and we try to we actually try to memorialize them. Um, we're not always successful at it, but we do try to. Uh, you do learn from your mistakes. Um, yeah, the I guess my advice to a, a young developer would be um, don't cheap out on your consultants mm. um, so many buildings now uh, and and we do learn from our mistakes we've we've made our share of mistakes but you know if you've built a building and you realize that you've got to go back and fix some water issues it's painful for the people living there it's painful for you it's expensive um, so you can avoid that mistake for a lot less money by hiring a, hiring a building envelope engineer. Mm. Uh, and not just hiring them up front to review your plans, but to bring them on the job and have them look at what's being built. Um, you're not gonna stop every problem from happening, happening in a building you build, but you can do your best. Right. Uh, we bring in, on our project, we talked about this earlier, um, we bring in acoustical engineers. Mm. I mean, why do you bring them in? Because you made a mistake once, and you don't ever want to make the mistake a second time. <laughs> and again, we don't bring them in just to review the plans and to make suggestions. We bring them in during construction to look at uh, the assemblies in the walls and in the floors and to make sure that they're going to hit the acoustical values uh, that you want to hit to have happy homeowners. Yeah. Um, don't, don't cheap out on the experts. Mm. I think it I think, will cost you more. Yeah, no, I think I think the lesson the lesson that I've at least taken away from me in terms of your approach is, whereas some developers may be so concentrated on reducing their costs, lowering their costs, saving money up front, and not and sort of miss some of these things that can pay off either reducing your risk in the long run with some of the construction defects or otherwise, or just you know good design, good marketing that can get you to a higher result, faster sellout velocity, and all those things that can provide a better better return and. Oftentimes you can't you can't you know have it cheap fast and good all together right There's got to be you've got to find the right mix where, you, where you're hiring the right people the right consultants bring in experts who can help you really you know find the right balance between that that mix to develop a good project. Did I accurately sum up some of the things you've said? I think that makes sense. <laughs> good. Awesome. Well, should we uh, should we should we get to the wrap up here? And uh, yeah, this is a fantastic sure. conversation yeah. thus far. I could probably go on for another hour here, yeah, but I, know, uh, right? I couldn't have another meeting. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but maybe we can call it a wrap up and uh, and and yeah, sum up with a few few uh, questions that I think PT you alluded had, to yeah, some you had yeah, ready to yeah, go okay. here for wrap up. Would you rather like exceptional cocktails and wine with marginal food, or would you rather have like Decent wine and exceptional food. 
The latter. Okay. Favorite type of food? Oh, that's hard. I like all food. Um, I mean, probably, probably Italians, like, maybe my favorite. But I also, you know, it depends on the individual dishes. I, I love French food. Um, my husband's family's from France, so we spend a lot of time there, or have over the years. And um, I like Chinese food. Mm. And, and and I like Japanese food too. Yeah. yeah. All right. Nice. I'm hungry now. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost dinner time, apparently. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of living in the South End. That's right. It, it is. Any of them, I, any time I, I miss want. That the most. It's, you know what the funny thing is? My daughter has. Uh, she's almost four, and she's like, "Daddy, Daddy, can we go to Petit Robert today?" <laughs> So you heard they're opening you, you a new place. You might not know this about him, but Mike and I, he give him credit, especially on the airwaves where a lot of people are going to hear it. There's going to be a lot of people listening to this podcast. I'm telling <laughs> you. Feel it. Um, he's an exceptional cook, like restaurant caliber cook over here. It's actually pretty impressive. I actually. That's, a, that's my subtle way of saying, can we give Molly and I, I come over for dinner sometime <laughs> soon? Make us something. <laughs> I, I, you guys I am also a, a passionate cook. Nice. And I remember. I had made dinner for a friend once, and uh, and he thought he was giving me the ultimate compliment. And I thought to myself, I can't tell him how insulted I just was. But after dinner was over, he said, "This was restaurant quality," <laughs> and I was like, "What? <laughs> this is home cooking." <laughs> This isn't a restaurant. This is home cooking with love and care. And yeah. I made it for you. One yeah. dish only. I know. I hear restaurant you. I hear you. Quality. Anyway, it's I not. took PT as a compliment, but I hear what you're saying, though, David. Yes, I agree. I agree. Hi, fine dining. Fine praise. Fine, fine dining praise. Quality. Thank you. Thank yes. you. Thank you. Yeah. No, I would definitely go for the decent wine with the better food. food. Yeah. Okay. Lake Not or... bad wine, though. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Lake or ocean? Ocean. I kind of figured that. 100%. I live near. Well, yeah. Truro. <laughs> Oh, too many sharks. I have nice, nice people. But no, I'm yeah. on the base side. Oh, okay. All right. And I have great views. <laughs> just, just the whales there. <laughs> we have whales. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, last question. Any good book? You, I don't know if you're a reader or not, but any good books you've read recently? The best book you've read in the last year? I'm always looking I'm for a new book. I'm not a huge reader, um, but it's sort of funny because uh, my, my husband is the exact opposite. <laughs> he has five to ten books going at any one oh, time. Wow. When he gets bored with one, he moves to the other and then goes back and he rotates them. And um, r Right now, what I'm reading is uh, I've decided, uh, as I'm getting older and there are things in my life I haven't done yet, I want to try to do some of those things. Uh, I want to go on a safari. So right cool. now I'm reading guidebooks to Africa. Awesome. Cool. Fantastic. Um, that's a fantastic trip, and uh, hopefully you get that soon. Have you done it? I haven't, no, but I've, I've I'm several times. I'm dying to do yeah. the same. I, like, I was talking about that with my wife a couple weeks ago. I am... I, I really want to do that. There's that new um, Yellowstone spinoff that 1923 is the show, and part of it's set uh, in Africa, the, and, and that's been piquing my interest on the <laughs> safari thing. All right, well, we've got to wrap up this uh, podcast before PT gets out of hand here. But anyway, David, it was fantastic talking to you. I think you got lots fun, of great advice you. for the for the audience, and obviously we were. Uh, thrilled to be working with you on Nevin's Hill, approaching a 90% sellout here, which is exciting, right? And awesome. so, awesome. Thank, yeah. thank you, Charles Gate. Yes, yeah. thank oh, you. Thank you guys for the, it. It honestly has been such a pleasure. Um, yeah. yeah, really great project, and looking forward to, to many more. Hopefully, that's right. Well, thanks, David. Appreciate it. Too. Yeah, awesome. Cool. Appreciate yeah. it. Thanks, PT. Yeah, thanks, thanks, David. Mike. And uh, we'll catch you next time on Empowered Returns. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Empowered Returns. If you're a forward-thinking real estate investor or developer looking for actionable advice that will help you generate market-beating returns, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. I'm Mike DeMello with Charles Gate, and I'd love to connect on LinkedIn and further the conversation for any specific questions you may have. Thank you for listening.